Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Juan the Taprilla, with his Shura's suitor, the Drocht of March, hath pierced to the rooter, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. When in April the sweet showers fall and pierce the drought of March to the root and all, the veins are bathed in liquor of such power as brings about the engendering of the flower. One Zephyrus eke with his sweeter breath inspired hath in every halt and heat the tender crops, and the young sun hath in the ram his half on. When also Zephyrus with his sweet breath exhales an air in every grove and heath upon the tender shoots, and the young sun, his half-course in the sign of the ram has run. And smaller fowls mark and melody that slape and all the nicked with open yea, so pricketh her nature in her courages. And the small fowl are making melody that sleep away the night with open eye, so nature pricks them in their heart engages. Than, long and folk to goon on pilgrimages, and palmers for to sake and strange strons, to ferner halwas, couth in sundry lawns. Then, people long to go on pilgrimages, and palmers long to seek the stranger strands of far-off saints, hallowed in sundry lands. And specially, from every shire's end of Ingerland to Canterbury they wend, the holy blissful martyr for to seek her, that hem hath holpen, one that they were seeker. And specially, from every shire's end of England down to Canterbury they wend, to seek the holy blissful martyr, quick to give his help to them when they were sick. So I'm sure you're going to explain what that was, Philip. That's the opening of a long 14th century poem by Geoffrey Chaucer, The Canterbury Tales, which is uh, really a collection of poem stories written in what's called Middle English, which means you can understand half of it today, but it takes a bit of work to understand the other half. And that's what's on the show today? Yes, but we're zeroing in on one story in particular. It's called The Wife of Bath's Tale, which refers both to one of the people on a pilgrimage to Canterbury and also to the story that she tells her fellow pilgrims. Marion Turner, whom you heard just there reading the poem in Middle English, she's the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language at Oxford, and she's just published a book that she calls A Biography of the Wife of Bath, by which she means it's the story of women and their lives in the Middle Ages in England. Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales are, of course, incredibly important to English literature, and the Wife of Bath and her tale in particular have had an influence today on what poets and women writers in particular are writing. You talked about a pilgrimage. So just before we get going, perhaps you should fill us in a bit on what this pilgrimage is. Well, in medieval times and even earlier, 
Going on a pilgrimage meant a journey, usually a long one and usually on foot, to the shrine of some saint, which would have been considered to be a holy place. And the idea was that you spend some time in spiritual reflection, but you're also meeting new people and you're talking and telling stories. In the Canterbury Tales, the pilgrimage is to the shrine of Thomas a Becket, who had been murdered 200 years beforehand in a dispute with King Henry II. And as the opening of the tales that we heard points out, it's when March and winter comes to an end and April begins. That's when people in England around 1400 begin to think about going on a pilgrimage. So what are we going to hear on the program? Well, Marion Turner, but also two poets, Carolyn Bergvall and Patience Agbabi. Both of them have written modern mashups of Chaucer. So it's about Chaucer, it's about the lives of women then and now, and it's also about poetry then and now. Sounds great. But in Middle English, how should I say I'm Nala Ayed and this is Ideas? Well, you'd say something like Iam Iklept Nala Ayed und this is Ideas. Und this is Ideas. Easy for you to say. I'll just say I'm Nala Ayed and this is Ideas with a documentary by Philip Coulter, The Wife of Bath. Over to you, Philip. So we start with the question of what are the Canterbury Tales? Here's Marion Turner. So the Canterbury Tales are Chaucer's greatest work of literature. So Chaucer, great 14th century poet who wrote a very wide variety of literature. And he spent about the last 12, 15 years of his life, so the very end of the 14th century, writing the Canterbury Tales. The son of a wine merchant, Geoffrey Chaucer was born into what we would consider a prosperous upper-middle-class family. The family was well-connected. As a boy, he spent time as a page to the Countess of Ulster. He was what one writer describes as an ornamental young man with a taste for fashionable clothes. In his wide-ranging career, Chaucer was a diplomat, a courtier, a civil servant, a member of Parliament, clerk of the King's Works, and controller of customs at the Port of London. He also seems to have travelled extensively around Europe on official business a man, in short, who was never too far from the centres of English power. He's also considered to be the father of English poetry, and it's as the writer of the Canterbury Tales that we remember him best. In the Canterbury Tales, a motley group of people get together in a dodgy London pub. They're all going on pilgrimage to Canterbury, and they decide that they'll travel together and they'll tell stories on the way. So then the Canterbury Tales is this collection of stories. It's called a, a tale collection. And that allows Chaucer to foreground lots of different voices, lots of different kinds of stories. You know, they all tell stories in different genres. Some are funny, some are rude, some are serious. So it's a really interesting kind of way of taking the temperature of English society at the end of the 14th century and also showcasing a really wide variety of, of kinds of literature. Chaucer might have borrowed the idea for his tale collection from the Italian writer Boccaccio, whose book The Decameron was a collection of stories that a group of nobles tell to pass the time while they're sitting out the Black Death in a villa outside of Florence. But the Canterbury Tales themselves have been a powerful influence on storytelling down through the centuries. Lots of writers have had a go at remaking them in their own time, and in the age of film, Chaucer returned Boccaccio's favour back to the Italian director Pier Paolo Pasolini, who made a film in 1972 based on Chaucer's poem. 
You've bewitched me. So you have to marry me, Jankin. Marry? But I'm yet too young. You know, my husband croaks his last. And all the people who understand such things agree. It's a fortunate dream. Blood means gold. I didn't grow up in an English-speaking context, so I actually ironically came to uh, the Canterbury Tale with a via a very different route, which was Pasolini's film. <laughs> so I came, the first time I sort of came to it was very much through that sort of early film that he did. Caroline Bergvall is a French-Norwegian poet, now living in England, who likes to rework old English and old Norse stories and texts into modern-day poetry and sound art. And then, of course, living in London or living in England, one of the main characters, in fact, that we're going to be talking about today, the wife of the wife of Bath, was one of the characters that people often mentioned that they'd hide in school or that you know that you would hear mentioned even in the press. And so that also that's also how it led me to this sort of very contemporary awareness of some of the of the Canterbury Tales characters in Britain today. A lot of Caroline Bergvall's writing is based on a kind of mashup of English, and one of her books is actually called Medal English an irreverent churning of words and attitudes from the literature of the long-gone Middle Ages, literature that she finds just contains the seeds of what we need to hear about today. Global warming, systemic violence, homophobia, misogyny. Proofs that things don't really change all that much, for women in particular. Her most recent book, Alison Sings, is a full-length retake on the wife of Bath for modern times. This is the opening section to the book when Alison introduces herself. Hi, you all. I'm Alison. Some people call me Al. I'm many things to many, a few thingy to some, and nothing but an irritante to socialize and other glossing troglodytes. I dig a good chat, banter a booter. Spin a long time, some in 600 times have circled round the same solar sun. Everything were different, yet pretty much the same. Sunsets were readier. God above ruled all, and the Franks the rest. Women folk were owned, trafficked, regulated, petted, tightly, impossible to run one's own affairs, let alone one's mind, not publicly, not privately. And so were most work folk and served, owned, never free, working, working day and night, sunsets redder, legs a little shorter. I've done well, say so myself, I've traded textiles and vows, fashion, millinery, bird nestings as fine as Philip Tracy, halo creations brighter, prouder than Frangelico. Standing tall kept me upright, saved me from oblivion. We'll get back to hats. Roger on the mic, host take a hike, bards on your bike. Used to have acne, worked in a factory till the boss sacked me. Now I'm the chef of a city calf, but the riff-raff don't get a look in if they don't book in. Roger, what's cooking? Here's what I'm spitting out of my kitchen. Hot and hard hitting, none of it written. Rhymes rough and raw, weeping like a sore. Bruised and ruptured, rude interrupted. But if you lit the spit, you'll get a taste for it. Here's another poet and spoken word performer, Patience Agbabi, who also likes to rework, rediscover and rewrite Chaucer. In her book, Telling Tales, she reimagines the Canterbury Tales in contemporary London. This is the poem, Roving Mike, the tale told by Roger of Ware, a short order chef who's also hosting open mic night. First up, the reveller. Raves like a traveller. 
He can tell a tale for a yard of ale, cunning linguistics, vital statistics of the Cassios and the Blonzy Nose every time he flows. So, put your hands together. Let's hear it for the reveller. The Wife of Bath In Chaucer's collection of 24 stories told by the pilgrims on the Canterbury Road, there's a priest, a knight, a miller, a clerk, a whole cross-section of society introducing themselves, telling stories to pass the time and to win a prize. The teller of the best tale will win a free meal at the Tabard Tavern when they get back to London. Most memorable of all of the pilgrims is the wife of Bath. Body, opinionated, self-confident and articulate, she's been called the first fully formed, completely recognisable, ordinary woman in English literature. It was the beginning of A-level English and our English teacher said, right, we're going to do Chaucer, we're going to start with the general prologue. And um, it's just kind of, he read it out loud, which was amazing. He read it really well. Um, I remember going to W.H. Smith immediately afterwards to, to buy an audio cassette so that I could listen to the Middle English because I thought it was really beautiful to, to hear. A frere there was, a wanton and a merrie, a limitur, a full solemnna man. In all the orders four is none that can so much of dalliance and fire language. And also seeing it on the page and sort of seeing how unusual the language was, how sort of both familiar and unfamiliar it was, and um, enjoying that. But most of all, enjoying the characters, enjoying the characterization, the Chaucerian irony. So that was my, my first encounter with, with the Canterbury Tales. These are stories, poems 700 years old, written in a language that calls itself English but it's a language at some distance from the language we speak today, sometimes fairly easy to follow. A good man was there of religion, and was a poor person of a tune, but rich he was of holy thought and work. And sometimes hard to comprehend. Be feel that in that season on a day, in Southwark at the tabard as he lay, ready to wend an on me pilgrimage to Canterbury with full devout courage, at nicht was come into that hostelry, well, nine and twenty, in a compagnia of sundry folk, be aventuri folly in fellowship, and pilgrims were they alle that toward Canterbury Walden read. But what is it about that language that draws us in, that makes modern poets like Carolyn Bergvall and Patience Agbabi turn to the past, and to this wife of Bath, who has a name? She's Alison. Well, for me, it is two things very much the stories, the narratives, all these characters coming from so many different sort of social environments and how they can be used so fruitfully to reflect our time. And so for me, it was this typical literary device of feeling very freed up because I could use these medieval characters in order to comment on my own time and, and conflicts and concerns that I have in relation to my own time. And the other thing was the language, the fact of this beautiful, pretty accessible, bizarrely uh, English language and what I perhaps as a poet today could therefore also do with my own language through it. To understand what Chaucer's doing, you have to read a number of the tales, not just one. Because what's so important about what Chaucer's doing is bringing together a clash of different voices and different perspectives. So what, a really radical part of the Canterbury Tales is that unlike his predecessors who'd done you know, similar kinds of tale collections, Chaucer doesn't just have tale tellers from one social class. One of his great sources is Boccaccio's Decameron, a really interesting text, but everyone telling the tales there, they're all of, of the same social level, which is an important level. They're all gentles. 
Chaucer doesn't do that. And by putting together different kinds of voices, he tells us that we shouldn't just listen to voices of authority. We shouldn't just listen to people who are coming from the same point of view as each other, or indeed as, as us. And so he really places into the tales this this radical sense of, of uncertainty, because he doesn't orient us in such a way as to say, well, this voice is the one that's right. This one is authoritative. Instead, he shows us that all tale tellers are flawed. You know, everyone is biased. And it's quite interesting to link that to developments in the 14th century around artistic perspective, for example, the way that artists were experimenting with the idea that what you see is dependent on where you are standing. I think that really matters to Chaucer again. And I found that really striking. I still find it really striking that this 14th century poet is foregrounding the idea of relativity so strongly in his work and really challenging us to think about our own bias and the bias of everything that we read. Geoffrey Chaucer was born in the 1340s, just a few years before the Black Death hit Europe, the greatest pandemic of all time, causing the death of maybe as many as 100 million people, half the population of Europe. One major effect of this pandemic was huge social change. Life actually improved significantly for many of the survivors. There was still the same amount of land to farm, but half the workforce to do it. That meant that wages went up, opportunities increased, people moved to the towns and cities, there was greater social mobility. People were able to better themselves. The world was changing. More medical and scientific texts were being written in English, more poetry also, and Chaucer was at the forefront of that. He was influenced by some of the French poets of his time, such as Machaut, but also the great Italian writers, Dante, Petrarch, Boccaccio. He was quite possibly the first English person to read Boccaccio. Chaucer borrows from all of these writers, but he also makes something absolutely new out of what they had done. In her biography of Chaucer, Marion Turner suggests that Chaucer developed, quote, an idea of public poetry, a voice that was neither courtly or spiritual, a common voice embedded in the social world. That resonates very deeply. Certainly the emphasis on being able to think of a way of writing or rethinking Chaucer through the tales that I've done, that have to do with the communal, that have to do with inviting people to listen, uh, inviting people to read aloud. Uh, so certainly that, that whole notion of being in, in a sort of collective space in which that poetry is shared, those pieces are shared, is fundamental to my interest in, in working with Schulz and therefore deeply resonates with this idea of there's definitely that sense of, well, how do we create new commons? And that's the question raised by the wife of Bath. The physical world has changed since the Black Death, and the social world too. But how might we reimagine the world for women, she asks. Here's what we hear when she starts to speak. Experience, though noon auctorite were in this world, is ricked enough for me to spake of woe that is in marriage. Four lordings, sithy twelve year was of age. Thonkered be God that is eternal on leave, Husbands at church door, he have had five. Five husbands for her. If there were no authority on earth except experience, she's saying, mine, for what it's worth, goes to show that marriage is a misery and a woe. 
And for the next eight hundred lines before she gets to telling her own made-up tale, that is exactly what she does. She tells the true tale of her five marriages, and talks about the terrible way that men treat women. An extraordinary creation, entirely fictional, entirely original, entirely believable. She's almost a woman from a nineteenth-century novel by Jane Austen. So. When Chaucer puts together his group of Canterbury pilgrims, they are indeed socially varied, as I've said. You know, there's not they're not all knights. There's one knight, and then there's a miller and a merchant and a sailor, and so on. But most of them are men. There's over twenty men, and there's only three women who tell stories, and the other two who tell who tell tales are both nuns, the prioress and the second nun. So the wife of Bath immediately stands out as the only secular woman on the pilgrimage, the only woman who's not a nun on the pilgrimage. A worthy woman from beside Bath City was with us, somewhat deaf, which was a pity. In making cloth, she showed so great a bent she bettered those of Epe and of Ghent. In all the parish, not a dame dared stir towards the altar steps in front of her, and if indeed they did, so wrath was she as to be quite put out of charity. So she's described to us in a, I think, very memorable way. And again, people who don't know much about Chaucer may well remember this—the wife of Bath, you know, dressed in red with her large hat and her fair face and the gap between her teeth. You know, she's very vividly described, and we're also told that she's kind of competitive and bold, but also that she's a. A cloth maker. We're also told that she's had a job, that she's inherited a great deal from her husbands. She's been financially savvy. Lots and lots of different things. Her kerchiefs were of finely woven ground. I dared have sworn they weighed a good ten pound. The ones she wore on Sunday on her head. Her hose were of the finest scarlet red and gartered tight. Her shoes were soft and new. Bold was her face, handsome and red in hue. A worthy woman all her life. What's more, she'd had five husbands, all at the church door, apart from other company in youth. No need just now to speak of that, forsooth. As the Canterbury Tales progresses, most pilgrims tell、uh, a short prologue and then a tale. So this is again where we see the wife of Bath being really important as a character, because she doesn't have a short prologue. Three pilgrims have longer prologues, and these are known as the confessional prologues. And interestingly, the three pilgrims who tell longer prologues—they're all marginal figures in some way. But the other two confessional prologues are about two hundred or so lines long, whereas the wife of Bath is almost eight hundred and fifty lines. That immediately tells you that Chaucer is doing something different with her as a character. So not only is she different from. Other women in literature before, so other women in literature had tended to be either, you know, queens, princesses, nuns, damsels in distress, virtuous virgins, or they'd been prostitutes, witches, old crones, those kinds of figures. The wife of Bath's not like that. She had gap teeth, set widely. Truth to say, easily on an ambling horse she sat, well wimpled up, and on her head. A hat as broad as is a buckler or a shield. She had a flowing mantle that concealed large hips. Her heels spurred sharply under that. In company, she liked to laugh and chat, and knew the remedies for love's mischances—an art in which she knew the oldest dances. She's an ordinary woman, you know. She 
She works, she has friends, she's middle-aged, she's middle class. She talks about her own desires. She drinks too much. She goes out with her friends. You know, she's flawed in all kinds of ways. Um, but she's, and she's larger than life. You know, she's based on lots of literary sources, but she's also accessible to many people in a way that the old witch or the virtuous virgin is, is not. But as well as being different in that demographic way, she's also different as a literary character. So this very long prologue, gives her an opportunity really to develop her, her subjectivity more than any of the other pilgrims. She's not a, a kind of fully rounded figure. She's not like a figure in a novel from the 19th century. She still has aspects of the type character, but she is more developed as a person. We hear about her past. We hear about her hopes for the future. She has a sense of time, a sense of temporality of moving through that time. She has an ethical sense. She also has a strong sense of humour. Take wise King Solomon of long ago. We hear he had a thousand wives or so. And would to God it were allowed to me to be refreshed, I half so much as he. He must have had the gift of God for wives. No one to match him in a world of lives. This noble king, one may as well admit, on the first night, through many a merry fit with each of them, he was so much alive. Blessed be God that I have wedded five. Welcome the sixth, whenever he appears. I can't keep continent for years and years. So she is developed as someone who, who we believe in more than we believe in in many literary characters at this time, I think. She, she's a, a more rounded kind of figure. And while she's very funny, she also talks about very serious things in her own life and in her past because the majority of her prologue is about her marriages. So she talks about her five marriages. And while she does so in a, in a very witty way and, and in a way that often shows herself in a very bad light, but she also talks about a very serious issue because she talks about domestic abuse in that prologue and tells us about the terrible things that have happened to her in marriage. So, so she makes us confront some of the most serious things that affected women in society then and, and indeed now as well. Now of my fifth, last husband, let me tell. God never let his soul be sent to hell. And yet he was my worst, and many a blow he struck me still can ache along my row of ribs, and will until my dying day. Though he had beaten me in every bone, he still could wheedle me to love, I own. I think I loved him best, I'll tell no lie. He was disdainful in his love, that's why. We women have a curious fantasy in such affairs, or so it seems to me. It's encouraging. You sort of feel encouraged by that female character, uh, especially uh, written in a medieval sort of time. So there's something so proactive, even the way that she goes on and on, that she talks so much, there's something really sort of life enhancing about her presence. It's true that even now you read the, the prologue, I sort of would love that prologue, and you sort of do get even then, you sort of sometimes want to react to some of the things he said, and she doesn't let herself stop. You know, the two of the characters want to interrupt her because she goes on and on and on. She just stops them and continues on. And, and there's something so refreshing and powerful about that. Madam, I put it to you as a prayer, the pardoner said. Go on as you began. Tell us your tale. Spare not for any man. 
Instruct us, younger men, in your technique. Gladly, she said, if you will let me speak. But still, I hope the company won't reprove me, though I should speak as fantasy may move me. And please don't be offended at my views. They're really only offered to amuse. Also, the fact that she doesn't care if she misquotes or doesn't know everything exactly right. You know, the main thing is to get the message out, you know, to talk about whether it's astrology or ways of marriage or, or even the way the genders function. That's what matters. It doesn't matter all the other detail about sort of acute, sort of precise knowledge. And that's also extremely refreshing for, for scholarliness in general and for how stories and knowledge get circulated. So, yeah, she's, she's, she is a wonderful, wonderful uh, character. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm joined again by Philip Coulter, the maker of this documentary about Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and the prologue and tale of the Wife of Bath. Philip, what surprised you the most about what you learned while you were making this program? Well, I guess I was most surprised to find out what a sophisticated society it was in the 14th century, in England anyway. No, they didn't have the modern conveniences that we have, and life was definitely hard, but there was international travel and complex systems of trade, as well as art and literature and science and architecture that we still admire today. Chaucer gives us a window that allows us to see how close these people were to us, in fact, and in many ways they're not so different. And they also struggled with many of the issues that we struggle with, ethical questions of right and wrong. Okay, so back to the program. This is The Wife of Bath, Philip Coulter's documentary about one of the tales in Geoffrey Chaucer's great 14th century poem, The Canterbury Tales. We all know a wife of Bath. We all know a wife of Bath. We all know a woman who's, you know, larger than life, who wears the, you know, the kind of the bright, the bright red. They don't have to be the, 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 the fine scarlet red stockings, which are, which I love that line. Fiend, her stockings were fiend scarlet red. It's just beautiful. There's somebody, it's about, it's about vibrancy and vitality. She is so much like a real person. So she's physically larger than life. She takes up space in terms of her voice and her personality. And, um, and she's irreverent. She's irreverent. And she even, she's, she's confident enough to admit that she tells lies. She's confident enough to admit her own failings. And yet she is magnetic. People warm to her and people feel energised when they're around her. That's how I'd describe her. Chaucer is developing a really new idea of character, 
one which gives the reader a great deal more insight into the messy internal world of real people. We all have this sense of an inner life, and the idea of enabling a fictional character to mirror the psychology, if you like, of the reader is a radical step forward in literature. Ultimately, this is something that influences the soliloquy in plays to come later. Shakespeare, for example, those moments when a character talks out loud, voicing private thoughts about their inner state of mind. This is something new. And of course, it also influences the development of the novel some centuries later. Chaucer is giving us a new way of thinking about literature and what it can do, moving away from stock types and towards characters we can identify with. And that's just the technical achievement that Chaucer pulls off. The second part of The Wife of Bath's Tale. After the prologue, her long harangue on men and marriage, Alison gets around to telling her tale. And it's a tale that ends with a moral problem. So The Wife of Bath's Tale opens in Arthurian Britain. So King Arthur, Queen Guinevere, and a handsome young knight who's riding around the countryside. So at that point, what readers then and readers now expect is that this knight is going to be the hero of the story, that he's going to ride around, maybe he's going to rescue women, damsels in distress, maybe he's going to fight a dragon, that kind of thing. But instead, very early on in the tale, we are very starkly told that he rapes someone. Now it so happened, I began to say, long, long ago in good King Arthur's day, there was a knight who was a lusty liver. One day, as he came riding from the river, he saw a maiden walking all forlorn ahead of him, alone as she was born. And of that maiden, spite of all she said, by very force he took her maidenhead. And the story then goes on to explore what happens after that. You know, what happens to this rapist? How should he appropriately be punished? And, I mean, we might immediately say that one problem is that the focus shifts very much to the rapist and away from the victim. So that's an, an early problem. The king wants to execute the rapist straight away, but the queen and her ladies protest and they say, no, let us do the punishment. Let us decide how a rapist should be punished. And they send him off to think about his crime, to find out what women really want. So having demonstrated that he doesn't care about female desire, he's made to go off and think about it. He has to ride around asking women what they really want. Some said that women wanted wealth and treasure. Honour, said some. Some jollity and pleasure. Some gorgeous clothes. And others fun in bed. To be oft widowed and remarried, said others again, and some that what most mattered was that we should be cosseted and flattered. That's very near the truth, it seems to me. A man can win us best with flattery, to dance attendance on us, make a fuss, ensnares us all, the best and worst of us. Some say the things we most desire are these— Freedom to do exactly as we please, with no one to reprove our faults and lies, rather to have one call us good and wise. And eventually he gets his answer from a loathly lady, a stock figure in medieval literature, this monstrous old, poor, strange, fairy kind of woman that he meets in the woods, who agrees to give him the answer if he will do something for her. He says, okay. 
The answer is that women want sovereignty. They want to have some control and some power. And he gives this answer and everyone agrees that that's, that's correct. But then what he has to do is he has to marry the loathly lady. And he is horrified by this. He says anything but that. Take all my goods, but let my body go. So he makes it, it becomes clear to us that he now realises something of the horror that he had inflicted, that he is now seeing something of what it's like to lose autonomy over your own body. Before this court, I ask you then, Sir Knight, to keep your word and take me for your wife. For well you know that I have saved your life. If this be false, deny it on your sword. Alas, he said, old lady, by the Lord I know indeed that such was my behest. But for God's love, think of a new request. Take all my goods, but leave my body free. And she then lectures him. And so this young, handsome, rich knight is not the ethical centre of the story. It turns out that the old, poor, ugly woman understands Christian ethics. And that is a really interesting and crucial point of the story, because she then talks to him about the fact that you shouldn't judge people by appearances. You know, she lectures him on some, some of the basics of, of Christianity and, and humanity and human dignity. Just now, she said, you spoke of gentle birth, such as descends from ancient wealth and worth. If that's the claim you make for gentlemen, such arrogance is hardly worth a hen. Whoever loves to work for virtuous ends, public and private, and who most intends to do what deeds of gentleness he can, take him to be the greatest gentleman. Christ wills we take our gentleness from him, not from a wealth of ancestry long dim, though they bequeath their whole establishment by which we claim to be of high descent. Our fathers cannot make us a bequest of all those virtues that became them best and earned for them the name of gentlemen, but bade us follow them as best we can. And he then cedes control to her and says, so she, she offers him a choice. He ultimately says, you decide. And he, she then says, OK, well, if you're giving me the power, you can have it all. And we're then told that he ends up, this rapist, with a young, beautiful, obedient wife. Cast up the curtain, husband, look at me. And when indeed the knight had looked to see, lo, she was young and lovely, rich in charms. In ecstasy he caught her in his arms. His heart went bathing in a bath of blisses and melted in a hundred thousand kisses. So... This seems, you know, very problematic to many readers that, you know, after this story, which has seemed to emphasise female virtue, educating a rapist, um, not judging on appearances, thinking about giving women power, that then seems to be reversed right at the ending. And the wife of Bath seems to recognise some of the problems because straight after that, straight after saying, and then they lived and she happily ever after and she was obedient, the wife of Bath then says, but I don't want that and says, but I want to be sent, you know, for us to be sent husbands who are meek and will do what we say. And if they won't, I want them to die of the plague. Jesu, hear my prayer. Cut short the lives of those who won't be governed by their wives and all old angry misers of their pence. God send them soon a very pestilence. 
which is an equally kind of monstrous way of thinking about the relations between the sexes. So as ever, Chaucer does not make it easy for us. You know, he tells this really interesting story, but doesn't give us an easy moral or an easy way of reading it and reminds us again that tellers are not reliable, that we may not agree with the way this teller reads her material. It's actually still a very useful moral tale for today still, in the sense that part of the background to the tale, the way one can see it today, is so long as the genders or the power dynamics are not shifted for both parties, there will be no deep transformative society. And so that tale resonates extremely deeply with so many conflicts we can and violence that we can see represented still today. There's two major problems. I think the um, the idea of being that if you're ugly and old, you're more likely to be faithful. And if, and if you're young and beautiful, you're much more likely to, to be unfaithful is problematic. But also, of course, the, the fact that he gets rewarded at the end, in a sense. It, to me, it seems that he's rewarded because even though he has given up his sovereignty in order to, you know, for the woman to make the decision for him. But actually the decision that's made is in his favour because he kind of gets to have his cake and eat it. So I think that's seriously problematic, which at the end of my tale I do have, even though I do echo the original story, I do have my wife a buffer say, you know, oh, so, you know, um, she, yeah, he, he married, she married a rapist, but he learned his lesson, then says, may God give us young permissive husbands. Sort of to get that in, it's like actually... You know, we still we still need the power. It's not okay that he managed to have what he wanted. Ideas of right and wrong, of ethical behaviour as we would call it, run through the tale of the wife of Bath. According to a frame of reference that we understand, she's pointing out what she sees as fundamentally unjust. It's a deeply moral tale that's got a depth to it, partly because of the depth of the character who has been created to express these thoughts. So... I think there were lots of different branches of literature that influenced Chaucer that were interested in ethics. So he, of course, is also reading things, religious literature such as sermons and so on. But many aspects of the text of Boccaccio are also interested in ethics and in the ethics of of women in the world as well. So there's lots of different strands of that, both in recent literature, but also in older literature, because a really key influence on Chaucer is Boethius, which is all about how do you live ethically in the world? You know, in a sense, Chaucer's got one strand of influence, which are more... I suppose, frivolous romance kind of texts. But then he also is influenced by these very serious philosophical texts about how we live in the world. And I think that Chaucer brought a lot of things together so that the story that the wife of Bath tells is a story that other people had told as well. And then Chaucer makes key changes to that story to make it more ethical, in a sense, and to make it much more coherent. The Canterbury Tales as a work of literature have had a profound effect on writing in English for 700 years. But reading the tales in the original Middle English is not a simple task. Middle English is the language spoken in England roughly from the arrival of William the Conqueror in 1066. Before then, what we call Old English was greatly influenced by the Norsemen, conquerors from Norway. But the Norman invasion brought new languages and influences from continental Europe. By the 1500s, the language is changing again into something closer to the language of Shakespeare, relatively easy for us today to understand, but Middle English can be a tough nut to crack. It's recognisable as English, but there are many strange words and sentence constructions. 
Here beginneth the book of the Talus of Canterbury. Juan April, with his surest sorter, the drucht of March hath persed for the rota. When my April sows me with kisses, I could make her my missus or my mistress, but I'm happily hit. Sorry, home girls, said my vows to the sound of the bow bells, yet her breath is as fresh as the west wind. When I breathe, though, I know we're predestined to make music. My muse, she inspires me. Then my mind's overtaxed, April fires me. How she pierces my heart to the fond root, till I bleed sweet cherry blossom on root, to our bliss trip this day she goes off me. April loves me, not April loves me. With a passion, dear doctor, I'm word sick, and I got the itch like I'm allergic. But it could be my shirt's on the cheap side. Serenade overnight with my peeps wide. Nothing like her, a cure, an elixir. Overproof that she serves as my sick cure. She's as strong as a ram, she is Aries. See my jaw-dropping jeans, she could wear these. In our own time, many writers have attempted to create modern, quote-unquote, translations of the tales. But one tale in particular, The Wife of Bath, has inspired not just translations, but reinterpretations. Alison herself has become a feminist icon, a voice from the past who is an inspiration for women of today. I think when I first encountered the wife of Bath in the general in the general prologue, you, you hear about this this big headdress and this woman with these wide hips, and I thought she is a Nigerian market woman. She has to be Nigerian. But also I think there was something about Chaucer's language, the sort of ruggedness of the Middle English that I found very exciting. And it kind of reminded me of the forcefulness of, of, of Nigerian English um, rather than, say, pidgin English. So I wanted to recreate that. And I wanted to slightly truncate the ambit pentameter and kind of create this kind of earthy, bold character. So I haven't really changed that much of from Chaucer's. When in creating my own, but at the same time, she's, she is very different because she's Nigerian. My name is Mrs. Alice Ebi Buffer. I come from Nigeria. I'm very fine, isn't it? My next birthday, I'll be 29. I'm businesswoman. Would you like to buy some cloth? I've all the latest stars from Lagos, Italian shoe and handbag to match, lace, linen and dust wax. I only buy the best and I travel first class. Some say I have blood on my hands because I like to paint my nails red, but others call me femme fatale. My father had four wives, so I've had five husbands. I cast a spell with my gap to smile and my bottom power. There is no lack of evidence of powerful and interesting women in Chaucer's time. There is Joan of Kent, supposedly the most beautiful woman in England, at one point married to two men at the same time, before marrying the Black Prince, heir to the throne. Then there's Catherine Swinford, beloved mistress of the Black Prince's brother, John of Gaunt, and a powerful woman in her own right. That said, with the possible exception of the French poet Christine de Pizan, women don't seem to be showing up in the world of writing. So Chaucer's lifetime is when we first get named women writers writing in English. So Julian of Norwich, who wrote extraordinary, really beautiful and, and intellectually fascinating um, works about her own, the revelations that came to her. And then Marjorie Kemp, who lived in the late 14th and early 15th century and dictated her, her book. So she couldn't write herself, she dictated it to someone else. So we do have those authors. We also, of course, have Anonymous, who is very often a woman. 
But undoubtedly, it was much easier for men to to write poetry and to find a space for their for their writings to be to be listened to and read and circulated than it was for women. Women still had less access to education, less access to audiences. So when Christine de Pizan is writing the early 15th century, she she very much makes that point. And of course, the wife of Bath, a fictional woman, also makes that point that women had not had the opportunity to tell their own stories. Take my word for it, there is no libel on women that the clergy will not paint, except when writing of a woman saint, but never good of other women, though. Who called the lion savage? Do you know? By God, if women had but written stories like those the clergy keep in oratories, more had been written of man's wickedness than all the sons of Adam could redress. So when the wife of Bath asks who painted the lion, she is making the point that men have always had the pen in their hands, that by and large, texts have been written by one half of humanity. Now, of course, some of them are going to, they're not all going to be misogynists, you know, they're going to be, they're going to vary. But by and large, if you're only hearing from one half of humanity, you are missing out on an enormous spectrum of opinion, and you are getting a very biased canon. I think that is really at the heart of what the wife of Bath is saying in her prologue, that we cannot trust the canon as it existed at that point, because it was so much, so much written by one, one of the sexes. I want to read a small section called Bookus, which is very much Alison's way of dealing with the lack of availability that women had for books for knowledge, and then really trying to translate that into today's writers, and on the contrary, this lineage of writers. But here it starts. So what's the use of more books if they don't fight back? Give me Patty Piss Factory Smith. Give me the slim lady, real slim lady Jordan. I'm unspeakable Acker. Just call me Castor, Mongrel, Zami, Outrider. They say, the women I love, they say, I've tried to tell of a world that doesn't exist to make it exist. They say that they foster disorder in all its forms. The female, the misfits, the misloved, the uglies, the oldies, the losers, the foundlings, the King Kong. They say that I began to speak. Words I had never heard myself utter before came pouring forth. They say that freedom is a constant struggle. The Wife of Bath retellings by both Carolyn Bergvall and Patience Agbabi are highly political in nature. But as soon as I say that, I'm thinking, well, of course, and why shouldn't they be? After all, the appeal of the original story is that it's a kind of proto-feminist tract, both an outcry against the injustices faced by women in the 14th century and surely every other century before and since. Of course, writers today and women writers in particular, are going to be drawn to this larger-than-life character and to her brilliant, funny, bawdy, angry diatribe. Women like her, situations like hers, are the same now as then. Alison has been on so many journeys across this, <laughs> these many, many centuries. And, you know, I've written about that extensively in my in my recent book. And the fact that I mean, we see her being rewritten by people as varied as, you know, Voltaire, Shakespeare, anonymous balladeers, Zadie Smith, Ted Hughes, 
Dryden. I mean, just so many interesting iterations across time. She's just gone on and on fascinating people. She keeps coming back. You know, when I was looking into it, when I was researching my book, you keep thinking, am I, like, I going to get to a century where she's not so important? But no, she keeps on coming. You know, she keeps fascinating authors across time. And I really love the line right at the end of Caroline's extraordinary Alison Sings, in which she says, you know, she has her Alison say, the era of my tellings is not bygone, it is just begun. You know, it's not over, it's just beginning. And so I think there is lots more still to come in The Wife of Bath story. Backtrack, Grime Mix by Harry Bells Bailey. Now you've tuned to or leafed through this volume. If you like any tales, tell the whole room. If you slam this slam anthology, for the sick bits, here's my apology. To all Christians misrepresented, to all faiths that were nil represented. For the hardcore macho and sexist, every encore showing sex as sex is. For the stereotypes, I hold my head low. Should I fix the mix? April said no. Keep the cursing, class A's and violence. Our intent was to showcase this island's love of retelling tales and its fierce pun. Not to cut out the gem from its pierced tongue. So we're keeping it real on the papyrus. All that's written is written to inspire us. Looking back into the far distant past, we have to squint our eyes a bit. Things are blurry, shapes are constantly changing, and there are shadows around people. The window is smeared, but some things are clear. Chaucer is showing us that they are us, we are them, and now, as then, a road forward seems possible. Me lady and me love, and whiff so dear, e put me in your wise governance. Cheeseth yourself, which may be most pleasance, and most honour to yow, and may also. E do no force the weather of the two, for as yow leaketh, it sufficeth me. Than have ye get of yow maestry, quod she, sin e may cheese and govern as me lest? Yea, certes whiff, quod he, ye hold it best. Kiss me, quod she, we be no longer wroth, for by my trouther ye will be to yow botha. This is to say, yea, both fair and good. On Ideas, you've been listening to The Wife of Bath a documentary about the extraordinary woman who dominates Geoffrey Chaucer's great 14th-century poem, The Canterbury Tales. On the program were Marion Turner, J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language at Oxford University, Caroline Bergville, poet and sound artist. Her most recent book is Alison Sings, a book-length reimagining of the Wife of Bath poem and Patience Agbabi, poet and performance artist, who in her book, Telling Tales, puts 25 people on a bus to Canterbury in the England of today. Our thanks to all of them. You can find more information about their books on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Readings were by Mev Beattie from Neville Coghill's 1951 translation of the Canterbury Tales. The Wife of Bath was produced by Philip Coulter. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer is Austin Pomeroy. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.